It's really encouraging, and uh, I'm so glad to be here. What a joy, what a privilege to bring the Word of God uh, to share with you this morning. I bring you greetings from the Capitol Hill Baptist Church and the Baptist Convention of Maryland, Delaware. Uh, I certainly will be bringing good reports to our Executive Director, Kevin Smith, and the rest of the staff there. Just being here, uh, joining you for worship, I'm immensely encouraged uh, by uh, your pastor's just combination of sound theology and the way that he's leading the service, uh, his good looks and his strong voice. So praise the Lord uh, for this church. Uh, what a joy and honor uh, to be here. And I pray that the witness and the proclamation of the gospel in this church will continue to bear much fruit and bring many people uh, to know and obey Christ. Uh, let me pray and we'll begin. <clears throat> Father, give us wisdom as we open up your word. By your grace, tune our minds' attention and our hearts' affection toward Christ as your word is declared. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see your truth, that we may glorify you and build each other up according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What is the cost of unity? How much is unity worth? In February 2018, just less than two months ago, 92 nations came together to participate in the 23rd Winter Olympic Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea. Forbes magazine reported it cost a total price tag of $13 billion, which is actually relatively cheaper than the previous games. The Beijing Summer Olympics in 2008 cost $40 billion. Sochi Winter Olympics in 2014 cost $51 billion. $40,000 for a single U.S. Olympian to make it to Pyeongchang in 2018. $109 million to build a 35-seat stadium, which will be only used four times before it was, it's going to be demolished. And it would cost $10 million per just one hour of use. So think about how many hours it would use. Well, that's just a few of the logistical costs, the financial aspect. What about the political aspect? In light of the high political tension between North Korea and United States regarding the North uh, Korea's nuclear missile testing that led up to the, 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 the weeks before the Olympics, and in order to prevent what happened last time, I don't know if you guys recall what happened last time the Olympics were held uh, in South Korea in, uh, the, in the year of 1988 when North Korea was involved in bombing Korean Air Flight 858, killing all 115 passengers and crew members on board. So in order to prevent that kind of uh, uh, something like that to happen again, South Korea made efforts to appease the North Korean government by offering to pay $2.6 million for the North Koreans' participation in the Winter, uh, winter Games, uh, covering the cost accrued by the 500-member cheerleaders, musicians, and taekwondo performers, and the journalists. And this doesn't even include the cost incurred by the athletes or the price of hosting the high-level delegation, which included Kim Jong-un, North Korean's dictator's uh, uh, younger sister, uh, but the greatest effort toward peace, of course, was marching together as one Korea, which was more of a political precaution rather than true unity. Watching this scene on TV as a South Korean, uh, born in South Korea myself, my eyes were welled up with tears 
because I know what I saw with my eyes wasn't real unity. Unity can't be made up. Unity can't be faked. Unity is costly. But while unity that's produced by the Olympics is temporary and has no lasting value, Christian unity, on the other hand, has substantial and eternal value. The overarching theme of our passage this morning is unity. And in Ephesians 4, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 through 16, Apostle Paul reminds us what unity means for us as believers, why unity is important, and how unity can be maintained. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. And uh, while you turn there, let me give you some context. In chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, Paul expounds the glorious doctrine of salvation. In chapter 1, Paul praises God for the spiritual blessings we have in Him. How God predestined us for adoption. How God redeemed us through the blood of Christ according to the riches of His grace. How God made known to us the mystery of His will to unite all things in Him. How in Him we have obtained the guaranteed inheritance, our salvation to the praise of His glory. But in chapter 2, Paul reminds us of our spiritual state before Christ was reconciled to us, uh, 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 to us by God at the cross. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were saved by grace through faith. That this is not our own doing, but the gift of God. This reminder was necessary because what we are about to hear from Paul regarding our new spiritual mission may have been quite shocking for the people at the time that salvation wasn't just for the Jews. What Christ accomplished on the cross was to break down the wall of hostility, creating in himself one new man in place of two, Jews and Gentiles together. That he might reconcile us both to, one, uh, to God in one body, coming together and becoming one family, the church, becoming uh, built together into a dwelling place for God. Well, what was the reason? That's chapter 3. To bring to light this mystery of the gospel through the church, a people of a new community. This was the eternal purpose of God, that all people of all nations would come to know God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul prays for the spiritual strength for us to understand this great love of God that surpasses knowledge. That's the end of chapter 3. Then Paul turns to the practical applications in chapters 4 through 6 with instructions on how to live out these doctrines. So let's read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Here it is. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, but he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that, but that he has also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of God, a knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul shows us, while God's gracious calling notably bestows great privileges on us, it also carries with it solemn responsibilities. God's calling uh, establishes the criteria to which our conduct and our actions should conform. This is the reason why in chapter 4, verse 1, I, Paul, therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Christians who truly understand salvation live their lives in a way that commends the gospel, in a manner worthy of the calling. So what does that look like for the Christian? What does that look like in the local church? What are our primary duties that Christians have that reflect the calling? So this morning from our text, I want to share with you three responsibilities as Christ's new community uh, should consider pursuing together in order to walk in a manner worthy of God's calling. So here's the outline so you know where we're headed. Number one, unity. Number two, diversity. And number three, discipleship. I pray that through this word you'll be reminded of the great cost that God has paid in order to purchase, purchase unity for us. And pray that you'll be encouraged to maintain unity for the building up of Catonsville Baptist Church for his glory. Amen? Amen. First responsibility uh, that you should pursue together is unity because unity is God's goal for the local church. Unity is God's goal for the local church. Look at verse 1 through 6 one more time. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There was one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Unity is God's goal for the local church because Christian unity proclaims to the world the power of the gospel. Remember, the mystery hidden for ages, according to Ephesians 3.6, is that, all, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Well, who are the Gentiles? It's you. It's me. How did you and I become partakers of this sacred story? How did you and I become co-heirs of this prestigious family? How did you and I qualify to become members of this very local body and the eternal congregation of Jesus Christ? Did you do something? Did you do anything? If you're honest with yourself, we didn't do anything. It's because we have been united to Christ. We are one in Christ and reconciled to God. So now Paul says in verse 1, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to which you have been called. Well, 
What is the calling to which you have been called? That we are children of God. That we are people of God, the church of God. That is our common calling, right? As his people, Christians are called to unity. Unity is our calling. Walking in a manner worthy of the calling is walking in unity. Amen? That's why we are together right here this morning, together for the gospel. Notice in verse 2, the common character of God's people called in unity with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. See, there's no room for pride and prejudice and division in the family of God. Hence, unity is the Christian responsibility. Just consider some of the one another commands in Scripture on how Christians should act toward one another. And these are just a few. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Forgive one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. The list goes on and on and on. John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. After all, the unity that is our calling, unity's common character, are not from us. It's not made up within us. It's from Christ. We don't make unity. We don't conjure up unity. That's why verse 3 says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintaining unity means it's already there. It's already given to us. Our testimony is Jesus Christ all in all. Our good news is His gospel. Amen? We have nothing to contribute. It's already given to us. That's why verses 4 through 5 explains our common testimony. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. See, each and every single one of us who are members of Catonsville Baptist Church can testify we are one body, one spirit of one hope. We worship one Lord. We declare one faith, one baptism. His death, our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. Hallelujah. Christian unity proclaims to the world the power of the gospel because apart from Christ, this unity is simply impossible. But Luke 18, 27 says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Amen? That's why unity is God's goal for the local church because Christian unity communicates to the world who God is. Look at verse 6. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See, this is our common theology. The unity that is displayed and reflected in the church is only possible because God in himself is Trinity. The ultimate unity is God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Together, all three persons of the Trinity accomplish his eternal purpose in the local church. Now, this may sound obvious or maybe confusing to some, but who God is in his nature has everything to do with who we are, how we live, and how we cooperate together as his church, the body. Isn't it true? The misunderstanding of this very foundational doctrine of Christianity, the Trinity, is the reason why there are so many countless cults and religions around the world. When you have the wrong father, when you have the wrong daddy, you get the wrong family. If you don't have the Trinity, you don't have unity. This is the reason why the world's understanding and claim for unity is idealistic, temporary, unattainable, and simply just wrong. Just think of 
communism, universalism, ecumenism. It's all man's efforts to unite things that cannot be united. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, we want to welcome you. Thank you so much for joining us in worship this morning. But I wonder if you ever felt like you are far from God. Or maybe you felt like God was far from you. Maybe you've sat in a room full of people and you felt like you don't really belong. Maybe you felt the emptiness, the void, the weariness of life, and you felt all alone. Well, let me tell you something truthful this morning. The Bible says, if you, apart from Christ, apart from God, you are completely cut off. You have no union with God. You have no true fellowship with His people. You have no shared blessing, no promise, no hope apart from Christ. You have no place to stand except before the judgment of God. You see, before a holy and righteous God, no one is worthy. No one is entitled to anything, life, health, prosperity, peace, joy, nothing. Because the Bible says that we are all sinners. No one is righteous, not even one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our willing, conscious, and continuous rebellion toward God, we rightly deserve just punishment of God. There are consequences of sins. There are consequences of sin. Pain, death, eternal judgment, and hell. But God, in His mercy, had a plan from the very beginning to redeem you and me, to forgive us of our sins. By sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, to live a life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, and He took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid the debt that we should have paid in eternal hell and died. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death. Hallelujah. Which meant that God accepted His sacrifice. Which meant that Christ defeated sin, Satan, and death forever. And whosoever, anyone who would repent and believe in Him will not die and go to hell, but participate in His resurrection and live the abundant life here on earth and forevermore. Joined together with all who will call on his name, Jesus Christ, as Savior and Lord, as one new people. So friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, I don't know how you got here or why you got here, but I know one thing for sure, God wanted you to be here. So repent of your sins now, confess of your need of him this morning. Trust in Jesus Christ, accept him as your Lord and Savior today. If you want to talk to more about how you can know Jesus, talk to Pastor Chris. Talk to anyone else who's smiling next to you and come to know this saving Lord. Amen? Amen. When Christians are united by a common calling, common character, common testimony, common theology, there are several implications for us corporately. Verse 3 is a good examination for any church to see if unity is indeed something we are pursuing. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So ask yourselves as, as, a new ch- as, a, as a church, right? Are you eager uh, to maintain the unity? As individuals, corporately, are you eager to do this? So how do you do this practically? How do you maintain unity? Well, check your heart. Check yourselves. Are you doing this in humility? Are you doing this in gentleness? Are you doing this in patience and love? Do you regularly lay down your preferences to maintain the unity of your church by serving in areas which may not be at the top of your list, right? which may not be the most convenient way to serve. Are you laying down your preferences? Do you humbly serve and submit to your leaders as commanded by scriptures? 
Do you gently prevent discontented members from sowing seeds of division and gossip? Do you patiently pray for unity among diversity in your own church that CBC will more and more reflect the community? Do you intentionally love those who are different than you in your church and in your neighborhood in order to be faithful witnesses of Jesus? Brothers and sisters, unity reflects the power of the gospel and reveals who God is. The first responsibility for, the, for God's new church, no, new community, is unity because unity is God's goal for the local church. Our second responsibility is diversity because diversity is God's gift to the local church. Diversity is God's gift to the local church. Look at verses 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high and, and led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Brothers and sisters, diversity is a trendy word these days. Multi-ethnicity, multicultural, multi-racial, bi, tri, you get the point. Yet we pursue diversity because diversity strengthens unity. But remember, diversity is not the goal. At least not in the church it's not. Unity is the goal. Unity is the end. Our end goal is to see sinful man united to God, isn't it? Well, Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we understand as Christians, at great cost, Jesus descended and ascended, incarnation and resurrection and ascension, in order to diversely gift each one of us that he might fill all things. The image here is an army winning a war and bringing back the spoils of war back to their countrymen. So in this sense, Jesus won the ultimate battle and he gave the plenteous loot to the church. Except the gifts that he gives has a purpose. I think to fill what is lacking in Christ's affliction according to Colossians 1.24. See, although our atonement from sin was complete in Christ's death and resurrection, God gave the church the gifts. And you notice that in this passage, the gifts that Paul refers to are people, not talents. That's why verse 11 through 12 says, And he gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. This is why diversity is God's gift to the local church because diversely gifted men build up the body in the local church and ultimately the church universal. As we see diversity as God's gift to the church, you can move from simply receiving, right? Coming to church just to simply receive and, and, and get, right? But now to edifying the church by sharing your life with others. The reason why God has brought you to this very church is in order uh, that in your uniqueness, you can build up the church towards unity. Amen? When we begin to see God's good gifts of diversity as people and not talents, when we value diversity as God's gift to the church, you cherish every single individual as God's image bearers. You care less about meeting a quota or a certain percentage. You care more about the relationship and the blessing and the edification that having diverse relationships and representation bring to the church. 
You desire the membership and the leadership of your church to reflect the diversity of God's gift. So you intentionally work and pray toward this end. Hence, pursuing diversity is the Christian responsibility. Not only because it strengthens unity, but because it also helps us obey the Great Commission. Remember Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. This has always been God's eternal plan from the very beginning. If as a church you don't pursue diversity as Christian responsibility of the local church, what kind of message are you sending to your neighbors in regards to the witness of the gospel? If your church does not look more reflective of your surrounding community, what does it say about the nature of the Great Commission? Brothers and sisters, let me remind you again that the gospel breaks through all natural barriers. It reconciles all sinful men to God. And it reconciles men of all ethnicities, age, gender, socioeconomic status. It unites all who will repent of their sin and trust in Christ as their Savior, no matter what background they come from. What are the implications in pursuing diversity as a church? Let me share with you a couple. And, and this implication may be one step out of the text, but in light of all that's going on in our society regarding racial injustice and racial reconciliation, I just want to ask you to examine your hearts this morning. Are you aware of the cultural conversations on this issue? How Christians should think and act according to the Bible regarding diversity and justice? Dr. Kevin Jones, in Removing the Stains of Racism, writes, Diversity is not an accident or a problem. It's a sign of God's providence and promise. If the church gets this wrong, it's not getting, just getting race and ethnic, ethnicity wrong. It's getting the gospel wrong. We cannot obey the Great Commission without celebrating the glory of new humanity only Christ can create. Diversity as God's gift to the local church does not mean, means not denying, rejecting, ignoring, looking down on, overly criticizing, typecasting one's own culture, preference, or privilege over another's culture. You can't champion the Great Commission if you don't advocate the cause of minorities as significant or even more significant than yours. You see, if you really think about it, we're all minorities. As people of God, we are minorities. We must see the issue of racial reconciliation not only as an American historical issue, but as a kingdom issue. Furthermore, the spectrum of our fight for racial justice and diversity should not merely be black and white, but Revelation 5 and 7, every nation from all tribes and peoples, tongue and language. Hallelujah. So are you passionate about kingdom diversity? How can we show God's love to those who are different, disagreeable, and uneasy to love and lead to Christ? If we do not intentionally embrace diversity as God's gift to build up the local church, if we grow weary or passive or, or ignorant about eagerly maintaining unity, I'm afraid the watching world will rightfully continue to judge Christianity as bigots and hypocrites. So how do we do this? How do you do this better as a local church? Let me share with you a couple applications. Pray continually, regularly, publicly for God to gift this church with diversity, working toward unity. Don't be colorblind, be color conscious. Have regular intentional conversations about this. Talk about racial diversity, even as a majority culture church or minority culture church, whatever it is, whatever your context is, talk about it openly. Amen? Number two, minorities mostly struggle with the social aspect of joining majority culture churches. 
So be hospitable. Hospitality, hospitality is a great way to get to know others personally. So continue to do that. Members should be encouraged to meet, disciple, have lunch with people who are different. Right? I'm not only talking about ethnicities, but uh, in age, socioeconomic status. Continue to do that intentionally. Be intentional to involve minority members in your, in your church services. Continue to do that. Have them pray, have them read scripture, give announcements. You should do this intentionally. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for inviting me to preach this morning. We should be intentional about discipling young minority men to become potential elders and leaders uh, in the future uh, and minority women to be raised up and encouraged. These are just few ways that you should consider as a church. Finally, the third responsibility uh, we should pursue together is discipleship. Discipleship because discipleship is God's plan for the local church. Discipleship is God's plan for church growth. So we talked about unity is God's goal for the local church. Diversity is God's gift to the local church. Well, why? What's the purpose of all this? In order that ultimately we can all grow into maturity. Hence our responsibility in walking in a manner worthy of our calling is discipleship. Number one, I'm going to give you a couple subpoints. Number one, unity of faith. Verse 13 says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. See, it all comes back to unity, one faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, that people of all background, race, and generations will once again understand that we are of one Creator, created in His image to glorify Him. This is the reason why church covenants are so helpful. It reminds us that we are not merely consumers, but that we are covenanted members of this local body. However you mind yourself, uh, however you do this, remind yourselves of the commitments you've made to one another. Remind each other regularly and intentionally the privilege you have to be given to serve one another, to love one another, to protect one another, and be together gospel witnesses of CBC. Secondly, for maturity and discernment. That's the end of verse 13. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. See, more pr- we're praying that more people, uh, those who are the elect of God, the people of God, can grow into maturity to make disciples, to advance God's kingdom together. That's our prayer. That's our desire. The fact is that after you've been saved, uh, the reason why you remain here on earth, right? It, it means that God has, has, a, has a purpose for you here on earth, right? Once you understand the theology, you move into application. Once you understand doctrine, you move into obedience. Once you understand justification, you move into sanctification. What I'm saying is we all have ways to go until perfection. And that means uh, God has allowed us to grow right here in this church, to remain on earth for the, per- for the purpose of growing, to make disciples of all nations, to disciple others, to read uh, scripture with others, memorizing scripture with others, praying with others, counseling others, showing hostility to others. Right? These are some great ways that we can grow in obedience and sanctification. So let me ask you a question. Reflect on your own lives. How has your faith grown since you were saved? How has your understanding of God's word matured? How has your love 
for people who are different than you matured since the first time you were saved. Uh, This past week was a conference that was held in Louisville, Kentucky, together for the gospel. Pastor Chris and I were there. This was my fifth time attending, and I've been personally blessed through these conferences. 2010, uh, my first attendance, I was extremely blessed and awakened to the doctrines of grace, which changed everything. The way I preach, the way I disciple, the way I even evangelize, right? So reflect on your own hearts this morning. How have you matured in your faith, in your spiritual discernment? How are you intentionally aiming to grow in this area? Third sub-point, dependence. Look at verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that we can grow into Him and into one another. See, this is the picture of God Himself, the Trinitarian nature. More dependence on each other. For us, more dependence on God. More dependence on one another to accomplish kingdom purposes. That's why I so appreciated your pastor's prayer this morning, praying for other churches, gospel-preaching churches in this community. That is an amazing thing. Continue to do that. Let me ask you, do you depend on God? How so? Is your prayer life reflective of your dependence on God? Do you pray regularly? I come from a Korean church, and not to say that Korean church is whatever, but Koreans love to pray, right? (laughs) We go early in the morning at 5.30 and 6 a.m., And we pray, Lord, do you pray regularly? I want to recommend some uh, resources to you. A Call to Prayer by J.C. Ryle. A great way to wake and stir your affections for prayer. D.A. Carson's uh, Praying with Paul. It's a great resource uh, as uh, D.A. Carson kind of leads you to pray through some of the epistles, Paul's epistles in the New Testament. Let me ask you another question. Do you depend on uh, church members? How do, you, how do you do so? America is a very independent country. So how do you depend on others in this congregation? Do you pray for others? Right? I encourage you to send them an email, a text, or a handwritten letter this week. Encourage them in their walk, in their maturity. How blessed are we in the church, in the body of believers, that have been gifted with men and women who can disciple us toward maturity. Imagine the advantage of the diversity of men and women God has gifted your church. How much more will we experience? Can you experience the fullness of God in this very local body? Discipleship of God's uh, people with diverse experiences and wisdom and viewpoints and talents covenanting together as God's people as common, uh, God's common unity, that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing gift. Brothers and sisters, the church's growing diversity is God's gift to us toward further growth and maturity and experiencing the fullness of God. So here are some uh, implications, right, as we think about this, as you think about this. There's so many ways to grow a church You know, there's a bunch of examples, program-driven, purpose-driven, metrics, business models, attractional models, seeker-friendly models. Brothers and sisters, you know that all these movements have come and gone throughout church history. But making disciples, discipleship, is God's plan for church growth. 
Jesus' final command on earth until he returns to his disciples was, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. What is the cost of unity? On April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Many of you know him well. On April 3rd, the day before uh, King had returned to Memphis to address a gathering in support of uh, the striking African-American city sanitation workers who were protesting unequal wages and poor working conditions. Apparently, their wages and working conditions were so bad that few workers had even been killed on the job due to the safe, unsafe working conditions. Uh, in getting to Memphis, King was delayed in getting there because of a bomb threat. Nevertheless, he made it to deliver a speech now known as, I've been to the mountaintop. Toward the end of his speech, King says, Well, I don't know what will, hap- what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountaintop. And I've looked over. I've I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as God's people will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, how much is unity worth to you? Hebrews 12, 1 through through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As Christians, we know that the price of our reconciliation, Christ's death on the cross on our behalf, and his resurrection gives us new life, new hearts, new eyes, to see that all people who will turn to the gospel and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior are a people who are valued and loved. Therefore, let's be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Unity is God's goal for the local church. Diversity is God's gift to the local church. And discipleship is God's plan for church growth. Let's pray. Father, you say in your word there is neither Jew or Greek There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. May the love of this church through unity and diversity reflect Christ and commend the gospel for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.